This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Where did the name start a? What was inspired by the name? Was it The weekend? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Uh, I was not actually looking for a theme song. Um, we had a, a different name that we we're incorporated under. And for some reasons I won't go into, realized we needed to change that name shortly before launch. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of making sure that, you know, this name worked for trademark and, uh, and as a consumer brand. Uh, but it's really around like, great, we're, we're building a constellation of brands. Our partners are our star partners. There was just like, a, it had some depth to it that led us to kind of like, oh, that's a great name that can encompass a whole lot of different uh, brands and, and products underneath it. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you're going to receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Chaz Flexman, who is the founder and CEO of Sarday. Sarday is a next generation food conglomerate that uses data science to predict product market fit and create new brands. We discuss why he left pattern brands to go into food, how they create and launch new products very cheaply, how they think about data and trends and different categories to enter, and also how to build relationships with retailers. Without further ado, here's Chaz. Chaz, thank you so much for joining me here today on the show. How are you? Doing well. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for your time. So you left pattern brands, which was an aggregator holding company focused on brands at, uh, for the home. I, I know you come from a software tech background. Why CPG? Why food? Yeah, so I um, originally kind of got into the hybrid of, of software and hardware uh, when I ran a company called Wink, which is a smart home platform, kind of Alexa, pre-Alexa, but we made a couple of our own products uh, and definitely fell in love with like the haptic feedback loop of like seeing a product you made in someone else's hands. It just like this really kind of powerful um, you know, incredible feedback loop, uh, which I really enjoyed, but also love uh, how the combination of software really um, um, brings an element of, of data and and thought and and um, you know um, kind of complexity to it that I've, that I've always really enjoyed. And so I've kind of straddled you know between the two uh, for a lot of my career. Truth, um, after I left Pattern, I joined up with the folks over at Equal Ventures. Uh, they're at CTH Fund uh, out of New York. And uh, they're a very thesis-driven fund, and um, we're writing this kind of uh, memo around, um, you know, the future of F&B and retail, 
And it's like, sure, let me like scrub it and help you. I kind of joined as a venture partner and not sure if I wanted to go back into venture full time, but I'm just happy to help kind of build out this thesis. And uh, about a month or two into it, I was like, oh, oh, I don't want to invest in this. Like, I want to go build it. Like, no one's going to walk in the door with a better background than me. Uh, and this feels like kind of a summation of everything that I've done in my career to date. Um, and so started it, uh, incubating it with them over the course of 2020 and then uh, off the races. Um, I think why food, um, there's a couple of things. Like one, um, it's really trend and data driven, uh, like attribute driven. So you can use data to really like drive a lot of your decision making. Uh, and that was some, wasn't something that was like prevalent today. Meaning, you know, while it wasn't a consensus thing or a consensus approach, it was one I thought there was, you know, a lot of opportunity to kind of create change and more predictable outcomes. And two, again, it's just that haptic feedback loop. I mean, one of my favorite moments from this company has been when uh, a friend of mine in Nashville went to a, a uh, kind of have wine and, and drinks at, at a friend's house and they were serving gooey. Uh, it just so happened. It's like, oh, it's my buddy's brand and sent me a photo of it. And just seeing that and hearing from consumers and how much they love the product is just second to none. Can you talk a little bit more about when you were at Equal, what that original thesis was? And truthfully, it's pretty spot on to what we've like uh, built to date. You can build the Benx great F&B conglomerate using data at the core of, of how you understand pent up consumer demand, uh, and um, you know bringing brands to market that you know are going to work and predicting product market fit. You know, I'd say the only thing that we've kind of realized more and more over time is that we're a B two B two C company, so we partner with big retailers to help make sure that we're solving their absorbent risk uh, with our products, but also in, uh, giving them category lifts meaning like similar velocity, if not higher, what's on shelf and like at a slightly higher price point that consumers are willing to pay for. Um, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that you build your bed online, you build your business in retail, and that's only kind of doubled down on that, um, uh, on that philosophy as we've kind of gone along. I really appreciate that. I know that part of also the reason why you started Start A as well was due to some of like the principles and uh, methodologies that, 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 that you saw happening in vertical SaaS and kind of applying it to food. Can you give like a breakdown of like what that means in this kind of third generation is, as you put it, of, of vertical SaaS? One of our investors is uh, Fiji, the CEO of Instacart. And we were having this conversation at some point and she's like, Chaz, you know, I, I used to run advertising at Facebook and coming to F&B, I thought everyone's going to be doing what you're doing. It's like, yeah, it's not rocket science. It's just taking all the stuff we know from consumer software and applying it to F&B. And truthfully, for us, we think about like the product is the process, the output is just the brand, uh, the data models that we built, like you know, are kind of the core intrinsic value, and the brands are what comes out of it. And so, an analogy I like to give is uh, Ford with the Model T. Uh, you know, the Model T, like they invented the assembly line. The output was the Model T that was you know more reliable, better priced, more um, uh, you know a better car. Uh, but the true innovation was actually on the uh, in the assembly line side. And so we we think about it from the same way. The core underlying data model lets us create a more predictable sort of outcome and predict product market fit. Uh, and that's uh, where it is. That being said, you know, I always get the question like, well, why don't you sell your software? And truthfully, um, F&B is littered with uh, companies that are trying to sell data uh, into F&B. And the reason for that is it's a very barbell industry. Um, you've got like the Nessies of the world that while they might spend $100 million on, on Nielsen, don't like really use data at all in terms of their decision making around what products to build or how to run their business. And then you've got like a bunch of smaller brands that, yes, they might pay for spins just to see how their products you know, are selling, but you know, don't have the balance sheets to actually really pay for software. And there's no like real strong SME market, which means you know, if I know a brand can, you know, can do $50 million or $100 million or $200 million, like, why would I want to sell that data to someone else instead of like use it ourselves to then go build those brands and capture the value? No, that makes sense in terms of um, in terms of why you would actually want to build those brands yourself as opposed to just being a part of maybe like someone else's stack per se um, as as they're building up their own brands. Can you walk me through a little bit about how you 
um, are leveraging data science, um, as you say, to like de-risk uh, a product market fit or to find product market fit um, and figure out which types of products you, you actually want to launch? Of course. Um, so, you know, look at like what's been historically done with like Spins or Nielsen or IRI. They basically just kind of tell you basket share or like what's happened in the past of like nut butters, jellies and jams. Um, we start with uh, a core consumer need. Uh, and build around that. So it's like that's something like anti-inflammation or gut health or top-down allergen-free or sustainability. Um, and we create these ontologies um, uh, around them, which is kind of the umbrella under which the, the data lives. Um, we use third-party data uh, APIs. We do web scraping. We've got some proprietary data partnerships. Uh, we kind of suck that in um, and then use like NLP on top of TikTok or Instagram uh, because consumers aren't talking about products or, or their consumer need like they are nut butters, jellies, and spread. And so you've got to use a bunch of NLP to understand kind of what they're saying and how that's related. We run a bunch of models to kind of say like, great, um, what are the core attributes or, or product categories that are then associated with this core consumer need? Uh, and let that, you know, um, really kind of dictate where, where those opportunities lie. Uh, a great example of that is uh, low FODMAP. Uh, our third brand, Kazumi, is a low FODMAP rice blend. There's more demand online for low FODMAP than there is for collagen. Um, you know, it's the normal prescribed diet uh, to fight IBS and bloating, particularly within women. Um, and yet there's only like a couple brands that are on the market servicing it today. And so we can use that data to really make sure that we're finding like pent up consumer demand. Um, we then yeah, create a PRD just like you would in software and, um, you know, work with our R&D firm to go spin up a couple thousand samples uh, and do blinded consumer testing through a, a third-party service to test for taste and texture and, and all those kind of key attributes because this is a repeat purchase at the end of the day and, and you know, consumers have to love it. And so it's not, you know, um, it's not just like 10 of my friends being like, Chaz, this tastes great. Um, lastly, if you think about walking down the aisles of a, of, a, of a Target or a Kroger and you see a basket, box of Triscuits that's sitting on a shelf, to us it's just an adding of that sitting on a shelf and adding it with kind of only five main variables of diet, health, ingredient, cuisine, and then brand. So we can start running a multi-multivariate test just like you would in, in consumer software to figure out, like, great, um, if I call something dairy-free versus vegan, how does that change pent-up consumer demand? Or, you know, there's a set of attributes you might have to have, like uh, non-GMO and gluten-free. There's ones that we call them the MBAs, or the most valuable attributes that give you the right to win. So think um, Halo Top with 250 calories per pint. Had they been like the low-sodium brand, probably wouldn't have worked. Um, but we can test into a lot of that, you know, uh, that consumer demand and understanding everything from, um, you know, uh, flavors to the color of the box to like those attributes. Uh, for instance, you'll see on Kuzumi with low FODMAP, it's actually a secondary attribute, not the top MBA attribute. That's because we can actually look at where something is in its adoption curve and say like, great, this isn't ready for like the primetime attribute. Uh, but, you know, we're, as gut health is more of that like hook to consumers and kind of orient around that. Um, but all this kind of like flies in the face of how most F&B brands are built, which is um, um, which is normally around that kind of founder narrative of I have allergens as a kid, so I'm going to create like an allergen-free cookie brand, and that's like the qualitative insight that's going to lead me to the promised land. Um, where you know, I don't think my taste buds represent Mass America. Uh, I don't think I've got any God-given insight. Um, I you know I'm actually the last person to try all of our products because I don't think my my taste buds matter. And so it's really making sure that data is at the core of driving like where and what we build and let consumers tell us. So, um, so you kind of start, I mean, as you say, you kind of start with like what like the, the, the macro problem is that you're looking to solve and then seeing like kind of evaluating what, what the pent up consumer demand doing a bit of analysis in terms of what, uh, what other brands are there. And if there's an opportunity to introduce a new one, if there is only a small number of brands, um, that are serving that consumer. 
our, our model is really like prioritize a couple things. It's one like trend relevance. Is this going to be something that like you know continues to build over time, or is it just a blip? Uh, popularity and then kind of correlation to consumer intent. How do you how do you define in terms of like if something's going to be a trend versus just like a blip? Yeah, and so we're running a bunch of like LLMs and regression models to see like great, you know, how is this? How do we think this should play out historically versus certain areas of time uh, versus kind of in the future? Uh, we score what we call events, which are these different independent data points, and like give it a ranking and scoring system to like actually um, uh, tell us like what's the like the highest probability of success versus something that's you know might be more of a, a slower burn. That's helpful. Um, I, I think also also you're saying how you know your how how traditionally we've had a number of um, incredible founders on the show um, talk about this. How usually it's it, it's usually a pain point from them or maybe one of their friends or or maybe a um, a sibling or a child or a um, so, or a family member um, that they're not able to kind of have this product um, in market. So then they decided to go build it and then maybe realize that wow, there's actually maybe a lot big like like obviously. I mean, obviously that's why they build it, but um, there's a much bigger audience here um uh of consumers that are in the need that where i where, where you're kind of more looking on the outside um externally thinking like what what is kind of like the common uh consumer or like mass america is kind of needing for exactly i also um you know i think and there's all credit to those founders and anyone taking the risk to go build something um i think sometimes those end up being a little more like a random walk down wall street like some work some don't and we're trying to use data to make it like predictable success, right? That it's like rinse and repeat that we can do this multiple times over with a consistent like ability to predict product market fit at the end of the day. Um, because again, like I don't think my taste buds represent mass America, but I think consumers will tell you what they want if you know how to listen. Well, how how also do you define as mass America? Because you know, and especially a lot of like, the opportunities that are like, or or a lot of the companies that are coming on the show and also start days, like usually these are like premium, more expensive brands. And usually you're not, you know, for, you know, maybe like the everyday American, like how do you actually think about in terms of um, just mass America in, in total and the overall TAM? It's, it's something that retailers struggle with, which is like, look, just cause something selling, something is selling well in 60 doors of Gelson's. Does that mean it's necessarily going to work in mass America? Like maybe, maybe not. Um, and so we kind of think about it as like building a, um, uh, an archetype and persona um, and psychographics actually around those core, you know, kind of the 12 retailers that really matter that drive most of the velocity and understanding great, like, great. What are the psychographics of that consumer? You know, are they working out for strength management and uh, stress management, uh, but not working out for um, weight management, which might mean that like in a certain retailer uh, products that are diet culture aren't actually going to work. Uh, and so there's, you know, some like keto might actually not be a fit. And so if you actually focus on like those kind of core retailers that matter, you can develop psychographics around it uh, and who those audiences are, you know, across mass America. And so, yeah, you know, it's also one of the things that like, if you can sell something for, you know, $20 in Air One, that's wonderful, but that doesn't necessarily mean an, an Indianapolis model of two is going to buy it. And that's where you get to real mass and scale. And so we do a bunch of testing on price points where we, you know, run a bunch of traffic to our site, we'll A-B test different price points and see like where those conversion percentages change. Um, to you know, say like, great, that's your market claim price of what consumers are willing to pay. Uh, we also spin up fake brands all the time to try and test them with that uh, that core kind of mass market audience versus again just uh, saying like, hey, this is what's worked on on the coast because that not, doesn't necessarily translate to you know middle America. Does this at all um, when you think about launching new brands and thinking about if it's right for mass America? I mean, as as you said, just because it, it maybe works, a product works, and you know, twenty Gelson stores doesn't mean it's it's going to work in Kroger. Does that mean that? when you think about um, that you actually have a preference in terms of which, which 
distribution channel you actually want to start in? We think about starting with big box kind of from day one. You know, our first brand GUI rolled out in every Kroger in America. Um, you know, it's going into Target and Hy-Vee. And um, yes, we're getting into natural on the East Coast just because that's got a really strong presence there. But it's not saying we're starting with that local, then regional, then specialty, and hopefully you're going to get to big box. But big box is what ultimately drives scale, right? That's where people do most of their grocery shopping. And that's where you get real velocity, Um and real revenue from. And that's, you know, quarter, like, you know, where we want to be building for is that kind of mass America. How much does it cost uh, your initial run to actually like create a, a new product? Yeah. I mean, we can basically build a brand in less than six months for less than 200K. Um, and so we think of that like R&D cost is like our, our CAC. And so, you know, if we're going and signing up a couple thousand doors, you know, those initial loaded POs only pay back uh, with gross margin because we can get to a gross margin profile at scale, you know, quite well. Uh, so we're not kind of slowly rolling out through different kind of um, uh, stages of, of scaling up production. We're able to kind of go into mass production, you know, kind of right away. And that means we've got to do a lot more work on the front end for on the R&D and development to making sure, you know, our formulations uh, work at scale. Um, but also means like we get to, you know, revenue and margins, you know, a great margin profile faster. So do you do your own, your own uh, manufacturing? Uh, no, we partner with uh, various co-men. Uh, and then a third-party R&D firm, but also have R&D in-house as well. Now you have four brands, is that right? Correct. From doing those trials, you say, you know, once you maybe produce, you, you'll produce, once you maybe roll up a brand or, or, or start a brand, you'll, um, you'll, you'll introduce a brand to, and do market research, maybe on like 2,000 consumers and see if, that's, um, um, if this brand has legs. How many, um, how many brands have you maybe started and you're like, actually, this is not going to work or... Or has it been none so far? The testing that we do is is actually on the product itself, right? To get like taste and texture and those key attributes. But what we've actually found, I thought probably at the beginning, we're going to have to kill a bunch of brands. We've actually found is because we have a stage gate model, just like it would in software, we end up like iterating and going back. So like Hebei is a great example of this, where we got it into consumers' hands and the, the scoring and feedback just wasn't strong enough. Like it wasn't bad, but just wasn't like overwhelmingly positive. So we went back to the model and said like, great, let's go stack some attributes on this to see if we can find more of a hook. And we found this uh, chickpea protein because we found consumers wanted more protein in their diet, but wanted non-soy protein in their diet. So we found this uh, chickpea extrusion to make that part of like the crunch of a bear, but now offering us 15 grams of protein uh, that's not soy based. Uh, and we ran it back through the testing again. It's like now one of our highest scoring NPS uh, products that we've made. And so it's more kind of iterative feedback loops where the cost of failure is a lot lower. Um, there's also plenty of stuff that comes out of the data model that's just not feasible, right? Um, something might say adaptogen soups. And Lena, my co-founder, who's a three-star Michelin chef, uh, food scientist, she's um, uh, created the first gluten-free flour brand. So you can look at something and be like, hey, adaptogen soups, for instance, um, uh, adaptogens are really bitter. You're not going to be able to cover that flavor. So that's not going to work. So let's kind of throw it away. And so it's really kind of a humans in the loop sort of thesis where, you know, you've got to understand like feasibility and viability, uh, that, which go hand in hand. Are there macro trends um, that you might, um, or rather a problem that maybe is um, very attractive in terms of like, there's a lot of interest in this problem um, within food that you actually don't think is really like, is, is really more like the fad side than a trend side? Um, I guess let me tweak your question a little bit. Um, so uh, we've we've done a lot around sustainability, and most of the brands that have come out are very much like nail on head, like alt meat. And consumers, while there is a, a core part of the population that definitely wants that, to activate mass consumers, that might not always be the fit for them. So it's like, well, how do you how do you ingrain sustainability in, in ways that like you know increases the actual audience size of, of consumers who are willing to pay for that? 
And so that could be things like GUI with uh, Palm Oil Free, right? That's a way to kind of like introduce sustainability while still being a, a core mass market product. Or Habea, you know, being like people want more protein in their diet. They want, um, you know, plant-based offerings, but they don't want soy. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's an offering that like gets people into the category and expands it versus just kind of nail on head of like, oh, we need to be alt meat or alt protein. Got it. So just kind of not as like, um, like a direct kind of in, like in your face of like, this is, you know, like a plant burger, for example, versus like a normal burger per se. Exactly. Uh, and so it's kind of activating that consumer through like secondary routes, which we think can have more of an impact because you're getting people, you know, to actually make sustainability part of their, you know, their spend uh, without it just being like, oh, I just want a plant-based burger kind of nail on head. Like I said, how, I mean, you, you categorize as well, Sarday, from the from from the get go, as kind of more like a B two B two C um, type business where you're selling to the retailers, and then of course the, the consumers are buying the brands, which totally get like. Are are you also doing like? How do you also think about like pull marketing like initiatives to actually um, drive consumer demands for your product that actually then they actually go buy? Yeah, so I think that you know the core of the data model we're getting to like the why behind the consumer purchase. And if you're understanding the why, that means you can, like, if you think about kind of the brand architecture, that's kind of like the core of the brand architecture that you're building around. But it also means we can run that same NLP on TikTok to say, like, great, who are influencers that are talking about these products in the same way that we know is going to resonate with audiences? Or on the shelf danglers who are out of home that we're running, knowing the core hooks of, like, why consumers are buying for gooey, like, low sugar uh, is kind of the core hook there. And so if you get to that why behind the brand, it lets you kind of activate the marketing side and be much more kind of pointed with it. Um, and to take advantage of, of tools, whether that's um, Instacart's, uh, you know, kind of ad platform because you know the related search terms or, you know, uh, the messaging that you need to have on your landing page of aisle to drive, you know, BOGOs and, and driving people in store to try the, try the product. And it's really kind of using that why and those hooks uh, throughout kind of all the different marketing, you know, tactics that we do. Usually kind of like the story for, for consumer brands is um, not always, but you kind of start online. Um uh, you get demand, and then and then you kind of go um, omni-channel um, after you have a certain amount of sales online. Um, and it seems like in this scenario, you're actually kind of starting um, per se in retail. Is that is that relatively correct, or no? Um, we kind of do it concurrently, so we can you know show retailers a product that's like ready to go uh, even before it's launched. You've got to remember retail all, um, is focused on like line review cycles, so like they might not be opening up a category for six nine months. Uh, until you can go pitch in, you know, they select who it is and they close it for the next 12 months. And so it kind of depends on the line review cycle and then when we have a brand that's ready. Um, you know, I think we use DTC uh, largely just for data capture around uh, a bunch of the testing that we're running. We think about Amazon or like a Thrive Market as, you know, kind of a, a brand awareness um, and kind of building that halo effect. Uh, and then, you know, getting into big box as fast as possible. But, you know, our first brand we signed before it was even live uh, with Kroger. So, uh, you know, we've definitely seen retailers that lean in at times and are willing to say, like, great, we, we believe and understand the, the data model and, and we want to, you know, participate. Got it. And so it's 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 using those channels to to convince retailers that, hey, like this is um, like this is, first of all, a trend. And secondly, why we are the brand um, that's actually solving this problem. Yep, exactly. That's awesome. I remember reading like an article and you saying how you wanted to build that you're building maybe more of like the Ford versus the Unilever. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, again, it's that kind of um, uh, the analogy I gave around the assembly line and the Model T, right? Um, it's like we're the tech is like is there underlying data models that we're building? The output's just the brand, uh, and so it's really kind of starting. It's not just like saying we're going to be a house of brands. Like we want to build the next 
Nestle. We want to build the next great F&B conglomerate, but we want to use it with data at the core that's driving the decisions to give consumers what they love. We talked a bit about how emerging brands um, usually start, right? It's usually maybe their own pain point, usually, um, or like a family member or uh, or someone they knew a pain point. How do you think about innovation from like the corporate level and what are they doing wrong in your mind? Yeah, so... Um, uh, one of my board members, Rick, jokes that he was the problem. Uh, he's a former consultant. And so Big Food is, for the longest time, um, been supply chain driven, right? Uh, they've had consultants that's like have told them to go put $100 million in your CapEx to get 10% better throughput of your core ingredients. Go do multi-year derivative, derivative deals on this ingredient to lock in the prices for years. Um, and that's why like most of the, um, the, uh, the things that they launch are supply chain driven, not consumer driven. Like no consumers asking for Jimmy Dean sausages to make blueberry flavored Jimmy Dean sausages or camels to launch soup sauces, um, right? And you know, but if you're Jimmy Dean sausages and and um, uh, you know consumers now want alt meat and gluten free, it's like what are you going to do? You put a hundred million dollars in your capex, and now you're kind of stuck with that. You kind of kick the can down the road to the next person. Similarly, like they're very much stuck in that intuition age. Um, if anyone's seen the uh, movie Moneyball uh, with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, it's kind of like when uh, Jonah Hill walked in and there was a group of scouts and they're talking about you know player recruitment, like, oh, that's a five-tool player. I know a great swing when I see it. He's like, no, no, no. We need like on-base percentages because if you got a base, you score runs. And let's use data to drive those decisions on who we bring you know, under our roster. That same sort of thing is here where you know we we think that like instead of being driven by the supply chain you can use data and that's just something that big food fundamentally doesn't know how to do um uh, at at the core you know they don't have a cdp they don't understand who their core consumers are they're not using data in their products it's largely just saying like great let's add blueberry flavoring because we can push through more of our core products onto onto retail shelves and call it innovation what i when i also think about leveraging data especially in you know cbg or just maybe consumer brands more generally um at least from the, from investment side, I, I think about Circle Up and what they did when it comes to looking at data and kind of reading what are they going to be the next kind of breakout brands. Did you happen to have any learnings in like observing like their story? Sure. So Ryan Callback's a personal investor uh, and a friend, and someone I you know I think is one of the smartest folks uh, in the space. You know, he would say you know if you think about a horse race, they needed to like both you know uh, pick the jockey, pick the horse, and like you know who's going to win place and show. Uh, and making sure that they're getting into the right entry price to get at the right exit price, and, and that this thing was going to work. We more need to know like we're in the we've got the horse with the right attributes that gonna it's going to perform well in the race and be top three. I mean that you know there's like a power in niches where like you know some of this might be a fifty million dollar brand, it might be a hundred fifty million dollar brand. You know if I could predict the invisible asymptote for any of these things, I'd go buy a lottery ticket because that's like. Um, that's, that's not impossible. And so I think we learned a lot about like, hey, you need to understand those things like most valuable attributes or like the characteristics that are driving, um, you know, consumers to buy. Um, it's also why, you know, uh, they've obviously sold, uh, used, um, I forget if it's called Halo or, or what it is, um, that they sell as like a B2B software. And one of the things we saw is like, look, this industry is very barbelled, right? Where you got a, a lot of small brands uh, that don't have balance sheets to really pay for data other than maybe spins to seeing how their products work. And again, you've got the big Nessies of the world that, um, that yes, spend a ton of money on Nielsen, but don't like use data and it's not kind of, you know, part of their, their, what they're buying, but there's no like SME kind of market here. Uh, and so that's where, you know, a lot of database companies kind of go to die. It's like, well, if we can, why would I sell our software for 10 K to someone when I can capture more value by actually building the brand ourselves, uh, and starting that way. And so I think it's, a you know, understanding like, you know, we're not, we're not selling our software to somewhere else. We're consuming it ourselves and capturing value that way. 
Got it. So just so I guess like part of the learning from from Circle Up was um, let's use all this data and kind of leverage it for ourselves for 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 building new brands, um, as you said, not to actually sell this as like an additional service for for others. How do you also thinking about building new brands? How do you think about focus? How do you think about how many brands to actually launch and maybe what like the overall calendar year looks like? Sure. I mean, we've done four brands in the last basically 18 to 20 months, um, which I think when I was raising original seed, people were like, oh, you can't build multiple brands. Well, um, you know, I think there's there's always the question of like how many SKUs do you need to go and, and how broad does any one brand need to go? And like, especially at the different inflection points. So like we don't really think about adding additional SKUs until a brand's been on retail shelves for at least six months, just because that's when we have enough signal to figure out, like, wait, where should we expand that into? I think as we start to partner with retailers more, we're like, hey, we can use our data to say, like, great, this is all the places that you should be built. Like, you should have brands. And we can show you in the data, like, this is holes in your portfolio because, you know, you, A, don't use data uh, well, and B, you're, you know, overrun with smaller brands that are pitching you that you don't know if they're going to fit. We can be that, that you know, partner deal where we go launch, you know, a dozen brands, um, uh, in categories that uh, that matter. And so I think the more that we have our retail partners locked in and, and truly partnered and like saying like, great, like let's get out of category review cycle, but into let's build brands that service the needs of your consumer. And again, these are our brands, not their own like house brands. Um, we, that will let us kind of build more and more because we've got that go to market kind of done uh, or kind of locked in, if you will. And then, and and then on top of that, since you since you would be building more and more brands, then it's, then that just increases your leverage because you're, um, because obviously you're just feeding them more and more brands and kind of building more pipe. Exactly. We don't have like a hard number of like how many we want to do a year. I think we'll probably do between two and six next year. Um, you know, we just launched two this year, uh, and so it's, um, you know, figuring out what's the right cadence with with our partners on the go to market side. In your mind, how long does it do you believe take to build a beloved brand? I think there's stages of it, right? There's like building consumer awareness. There's activating households, having them trial your product. It's why you run TPRs or BOGO campaigns. Um, I'd say that, you know, if you walk down the aisles uh, of a Kroger or a Whole Foods or, or a number of other retailers, how many of those brands do you actually like know and love, right? Uh, or have you ever been to their website? And the answer is not very many, right? There's, a, there's always a couple, but like maybe it's Bonza or goodles or you know magic spoon um but there's not many like that you recognize that you know that are owned by Kraft or hershey's or or nestle and so i think there's because they're like a lower aov product it's very different than a pattern where it's like a higher aov product you've got to like build more brand awareness to convert where it's a lot of it is making sure you've got the right things on shelf and consumer awareness of the product to get them hooked in buying because you know once you get someone on your product they're they're tend to be with you for years um um, because you're, you're giving them the product that they want. Was that at all transitioning from, from uh, pattern to survey where obviously very, very different type of uh, products pattern, much more durable products um, is shifting towards consumables. Just when you think about the overall the operating, obviously very, very different businesses, but just for you personally, was that kind of a big shift for you? Yeah, it was one of the ways I, I because we can build brands that are so to market and so quickly and, and because it's so attribute driven, is where these data models actually like, like, oh, this works a whole lot better than you know if it takes you 18 months to build a CPG brand and they're very much design driven. So you can't get a lot of you know data, you know, back into um, into your development cycles. That doesn't mean it's none. There's there's plenty of learnings from pattern there. Uh, but you can do influence it a whole lot more because of the, the shorter production cycles. Um, and then again, on the uh, 
you know, knowing that retailers are, you know, what really drive volume and that getting placement on shelf and optimizing that, that ad unit of your packaging on shelf uh, is incredibly important because it's a lower AOV kind of snap decision when, it, when a uh, person is walking down a, an aisle. What were some of the challenges um, when you did fundraise or, or how did that process go? Because um, as you kind of pointed out earlier, I think investors kind of want you building one product. They want you to focus on, on, on building one, one product. Um, I think partially the reason is because the majority of the great exits happen, um, um, ha- happen through strategics and strategics usually only require one brand. Of course, this is a very different scenario because you're building a, a holding company. Just how was that whole process for you? I mean, no matter how many times I've done fundraising, it's never it's never fun. Uh, uh, and given me, you know, there's uh, no fun in fundraising. No, uh, look, like what we're building today isn't consensus, right? And I think that's what ventures for. Like saying we're using data to build brands is not a consensus statement. I think if you fast forward five years, it's going to be consensus. Like it's it, it becomes like a of course. Why would you build it any other way? Um, and two, like you know, we're it's like we're building the next Nestle, but we're also like a data science company. You've got to like kind of really uh, scrub in. Um, but it also means we can create more equity efficiency, which is what ventures meant for by getting to a level of scale faster, to a gross margin profile faster, where it makes um, you know venture money make sense. And so I think it's one of those you know uh, we've got a great set of investors that have been believers from from day one. Uh, you know I think it's always an education process uh, with new investors where. You know, they can't just look at us as a software company. They can't just look at, at a CPG company. And so it's really kind of doing the work to understand, like, great. Um, one of the things my time at Andreessen taught me is there's two ways of looking at venture. One is, like, why won't this work? Or if this does work, how big does it become? And like, if, if we do this right, we're an N of one outcome in F&B. We're a multi-billion dollar company uh, versus just selling a brand for $100 million or $150 million, uh, which is kind of more traditional on that single product line. And so it's making sure that people understand, like, great, if we continue to be right and continue to build, like we're, we're building an end of one outcome and that like fits the power law curve of, of venture capital. You're developing a new brand. How do you think overall about like that story of the brand? Since it's not, you know, as you say, like the traditional way, which it's usually very personal. It's usually um, an entrepreneur that kind of has, you know, a, maybe a family member, maybe it's them, maybe it's um, someone that has, that, that, that they know that may be struggling with this particular uh, problem and they want to solve it. How do you think overall about story um, in your brands when you're when you're creating one, since it is you know very tech heavy. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're trying to get there in the same way that 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 narrative as well, which is the why behind the brand, right? And what's that underlying core consumer need that's not being met today? Uh, and making sure that the brand that we build, um, you know, we have a wonderful uh, partner on the brand side, Camille Baldwin, who runs uh, it's called Outdoor Cats, but who's the former head of brand at Gin Lane and the head of brand at, at Pattern and part of the founding team as well. Where it's like, look, we're, we're giving her a ton of insight to then go build that brand architecture and, and voice and visual and copy, uh, you know, around to make sure it's a why that's resonating with consumers and that we can go build around um, and really kind of hammering home on, on that. And so it's, um, again, I think it's two ways to kind of get to the same, like, ultimate conclusion, which is that, like, why a consumer should care. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Personally, Richard Branson's How I Lost My Virginity, The Story of a Virgin. Um it's one of those, I read it in one sitting and kind of realized I needed to get on the front foot of life and like go after the things that I wanted um, uh, and not just hope that it's, um, you know, how the cards are going to unfold. And so that's, that was like one of those moments, like that's where I helped, gave me the, the, the courage and, and the fortitude to go break into venture capital back in 2011 um, and really kind of going after like, great, this is what I want the next step in my career to be. I'd say... Um, uh, the two business books that have really like 
influenced me a lot recently are, are um, the Everything Store, uh, which is the story of Amazon, and then um, uh, uh, the book on Disney. I'm going to blank on the name of it now. Uh, Red of a Lifetime, um, uh, which is just like an incredible story about leadership uh, and you know how how that kind of happened over time. That's great. We had a, a few guests mention these three, so uh, excited to add your name to them. This is awesome. Um, a final question: Where did the name Saturday? What was inspired by the name? Was it the weekend? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Uh, I was not actually looking for a theme song. Um, we had a, a different name that we're incorporated under, and for some reasons I won't go into, realized we needed to change that name shortly before launch. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of making sure that you know this name worked for trademark and uh, and as a consumer brand. Uh, but it's really around like, great, we're, we're building a constellation of brands. Our partners are our star partners. There was just like, a, it had some depth to it that led us to kind of like, oh, that's a great name that can encompass a whole lot of different uh, brands and, and products underneath it. Chaz, really appreciate you taking the time. Wonderful. Appreciate you having me on. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Chaz. Chaz, thanks again for coming on the show. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So when... Someone wants to invest, whether they've started their own fund, their emerging manager, or they and they have LPs, or whether they're or an angel investor. How do they typically get started? What should what should they be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So, <clears throat> yeah, our platform makes it easy for people to pool funds together and invest in early stage startups. There's a number of reasons uh, someone would use, you know, SPVs or want to create a venture capital fund. Um, so. You know, for angels, I would say, you know, the most important part is, you know, diversifying your portfolio. So instead of, you know, putting 10K checks into, you know, a single company, you can diversify by putting your eggs in various different baskets using an SPV. Um, so that's, it's, it's a predominantly uh, popular use case to kind of diver- diversify your angel investing. Um, as you know, it's highly risky asset class. So, um instead of being concentrated in one single asset, it, uh, it allows you to invest in multiple. So that's a use case there. Cool. So how how does Vobin kind of make it easy? And what, what do you need to think about on like the admin side in order to actually set up whether you're angel investing, whether they're setting up like an SVV um, or, or a fund? Yeah. So, you know, fundraising is a pretty difficult task, uh, whether you're a founder, angel, or, you know, a venture capitalist. Um, so with our product, you know, we have all the ancillary services incorporated into the platform using a digital platform. Um, so, you know, we handle the legal documents to create a separate legal entity. We have a banking pl- uh, partner that is incorporated into the dashboard. We'll onboard the investors. You'll have real-time information of how your fundraising process is going. Um, and then we'll ha- handle any administrative aspects such as reporting, uh, any taxes, and ultimately uh, the distribution at an exit scenario. So, you know, if a company goes IPO, if a company gets acquired, you know, how does that capital flow back to the investors? Um, so, you know, we handle all of that. So our clients can focus on, you know, finding great opportunities, networking, building relationships and building those investor relationships, which takes a lot of time and effort uh, as anyone who's been fundraising will know. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those. 